Well, it is good to be with you again here at Christ Church on this Pentecost weekend. I always find it a joy and a privilege to, to join you. So I want to thank Pastor Mike and the whole staff here at Christ Church for welcoming me. I do teach just down the road at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I had a chance to shake Pastor David's hand on Friday evening as he walked across the aisle to receive his uh, diploma for his PhD. And there are several pastors and staff uh, at Christ Church who were there this past weekend. It was a wonderful, wonderful time, except for the rain pouring down on us on Friday night. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're in Revelation 5, and we're looking at Revelation 5, 1 through 10. So that's where we're going to be, Revelation 5, 1 through 10. And while you're turning there, uh, I'm going to just go back in time about 20 years to June 6, 1996. Now, June 6th was a significant date in the life of my hometown. Uh, I was born and raised in Princeton, New Jersey, just a couple miles from Princeton University, the prestigious Ivy League school. And the year 1996 was the 250th anniversary of Princeton University. It was quite a significant year for that school, quite a significant milestone. And on June 6th, 1996... Then-President Clinton came to deliver the commencement address for the graduates of Princeton University and their families, as well as the faculty and administrators and staff there at the university. Now, I'm sure it was a magnificent speech, but I don't know because I wasn't there. Actually, what I remember was not only the unprecedented amount of security in my hometown on that particular day, but I remember the front entrance to the university. Uh, there's a gate called Fitz Randolph Gate with these thick black iron bars, and you can look through and see Nassau Hall, this historic building with ivy coming down the walls. Normally, you can walk through that gate without any trouble. And you can see the beautiful Nassau Hall with the two bronze tigers in front and the ivy coming down from the walls. But on this particular date, instead of seeing Fitzrandolph Gate, what you saw was a massive impenetrable wall outside the university. Uh, It was meant for security. Now, if a stranger had come through my hometown and walked down Nassau Street outside the university, I'm not sure he or she would have known that there was a university on the other side. The wall was so big that you wouldn't even know that Nassau Hall was behind it. I remember, actually, there was a man at my home church who was in the regional branch of the Secret Service. And in the weeks leading up to the president's visit, I went up to him and I I said to him, now, is there anything you could tell me about the president's visit? And he looked at me and literally said, I could tell you, but then I would have to kill you. And he had this little glimmer in his eye that made me think it wouldn't take very long for him to do it. Now, I don't remember the speech because I wasn't there. Uh, I don't remember uh, meeting the president because he was unavailable. It was high security. What I remember best is the wall. Uh, There was this giant impenetrable wall that kept the outsiders out and the insiders in. There were those who had access and those who were denied access. There were those who had the privilege and opportunity of being on the inside and those who felt what it was like to be on the outside. I'd walked through that gate thousands of times. But on this particular day, there was no way to get through. 
Now with that image of, of a wall and that theme of denied access fresh on our minds, I'd like to introduce us to our text for this weekend, Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Now we're going to be talking about Pentecost, so I invite you to bear with me. But what I want to do is I want to start where the text starts. Uh, it starts with access, or I should say denied access. It starts with outsiders looking in from the outside to what cannot be seen on the inside. So we're going to work our way through Revelation 5. I'm just going to start with the first four verses and then we'll continue on. Revelation 5, starting in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Now if you read on in Revelation 5, you see that it ends in adoration and praise and thanksgiving to the Lamb, but that's not where it begins. It ends with worship and adoration, but it starts with lament and with despair. To give a little context, John, the writer of the book of Revelation, is writing to churches in Asia Minor to help them to maintain a faithful witness in the midst of persecution. So John, the writer, is also the seer of these heavenly visions. And in Revelation 4, he's given access to the God upon the throne who is the God of creation. But at the beginning of this chapter, a crisis is introduced into the heavenly scene. The one who is seated upon the throne, according to verse 1, holds in his right hand a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. In the ancient world, a a king or governor or Caesar would seal a document with a heated wax enclosure that bore the insignia of the monarch or ruler. Only those with privileged access were able to break the scroll or break the seal and open what was inside. And in this heavenly scene, John, the writer and the seer of this vision, comes to the realization that there is no one available and accessible with the rights and privileges or worthiness to break this scroll with seven seals upon it. In fact, The question comes in verse 2, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And John says in verse 3 that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. There's an impenetrable wall separating those on the outside from what is inside. There's no access, there's no opportunity Have you ever felt so helpless, so hopeless? Have you ever felt so much like an outsider that you wonder if you'll ever be able 
to pass through this lament or despair. Well, that's where John finds himself at the beginning of this passage. Some of you are familiar with a scene in John Bunyan's book, A Pilgrim's Progress. The main character's name is Christian. It's an allegory of the Christian life. And there's a moment in that book where Christian must pass through a region or a land called the Slough of Despond, which is uh, translated or another way of saying the Swamp of Despair. A Christian must try or attempt to pass through it but weighed down by the crushing weight of his own sin and of his own sense of unworthiness, he discovers what so many of us discover. It's much easier to live in the slough of despond than it is to pass through it. And so John gives way to weeping. We read in the text, he says, I wept and I wept. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals. So something supernatural must happen in order for the change to be effected. Uh, Something extraordinary must take place in order for this crisis to be resolved in some way, in some form, in some fashion. Something must happen for John to pass through the slough of despond. To move out of lament and despair toward hopefulness and joy. But the promise of this text, and what I want to remind you of on this Pentecost weekend, is that something extraordinary did happen. Something supernatural did. We read it in verse 5. So I invite you to look back there. Revelation 5, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So what does this mean? Let me put it this way. Jesus opens the door to access through his magnificent defeat. That phrase, magnificent defeat, I take from Frederick Beekner, who says that the cross and resurrection represent the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. Where there was a wall, Jesus opens a door so that those who were on the outside are welcomed on the inside. Those without access are given access There is one who is worthy, one who opens the door of access through his magnificent defeat upon the cross and his victory over the grave. 
These images are rich. The, the root of David is an image taken from Isaiah 11 verse 1, which is a promise that one will rise, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The image of the lion of the tribe of Judah is taken from Genesis 49 verses 9 through 10, the promise that Israel makes to his son Judah that the scepter would not depart from him and that he would be as a lion roaring in triumph. The root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, we read, has triumphed. That image of the lion is an image of power and grandeur and greatness. The lion is the king of the jungle. I think of C.S. Lewis's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, in which Aslan, the main character, is this mighty and great king. And when we think of Jesus, we should think of his kingship. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-sufficient. That's not the only image here. In fact, we should ask the question, how is it that the lion has triumphed? And the answer comes to us in verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. What a peculiar juxtaposition. What a peculiar paradox that the one who is the lion also becomes a lamb. This is what commentator Julian Price Love writes. When earthbound men want symbols of power, they conjure up mighty beasts and birds of prey. Russia elevates the bear, Britain the lion, France the tiger, the United States the bald eagle, all of them ravenous. It is only the kingdom of heaven that would dare to use as its symbol of might, not the lion for which John was looking, but the helpless lamb, and that a slain lamb. Yes, the image of the lamb is rooted in the Old Testament and in the book of Exodus and in the Passover event. It's rooted in all of these Old Testament stories, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that it's an image of weakness and vulnerability and helplessness. The one who is great and mighty and powerful is also willing to become weak and vulnerable. He is innocent. He is slain. It'd be so easy to distance ourselves and detach ourselves from all of this celestial and apocalyptic language and imagery. But let me just personalize it for a minute. I remember hearing a story by John Ortberg, who's now a pastor at at Menlo Park in California and was a pastor in Chicagoland for many years. And he tells this story of uh, going up to Lake Geneva with two of his kids. And they were really young at the time, and it was winter. And Lake Geneva was frozen over. He says, my two kids and I went out to play on the lake for about an hour and 15 minutes. And my daughter and I were trying to push each other at one point, And she had a hold of my arm. And so I pulled it away from her as hard as I could go. And right at that moment, my younger son came running up towards me. And I didn't mean to do it, but I hit him in the face as hard as my hand could go. And this little guy just slumped over onto the ice. And I looked down at him and his face was covered with blood. 
And I, I picked him up in my arms, and he looked up at me, and he just started saying, it's okay, Dad, it's okay. Now, Ortberg admits that wasn't the first thing that he said. But he said, it's all right, Dad, I'm okay. And this is what Ortberg observes. He is the one who was comforting me. I was the cause of his blood. But he was the one who was comforting me. Now if we might just pause for a moment. It would be good for us to remember. It would be good for me to remember. I am the cause of his pain and he is the one who's consoling me. I am the source of his blood and he is the one who is comforting me. The lion of the tribe of Judah conquers through becoming a pure and helpless lamb, a slain lamb. It is that lamb who we read in this text is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. And when he does, we read in verses 6 and following that the four living creatures and the elders fall down and worship him. Each has a harp and they're holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. God, in Jesus Christ, uses the cross to bring about new life. God in Jesus Christ uses death to bring about the death of death. God in Jesus Christ turns things around through becoming a pure and helpless lamb. Jesus opens the door to access through his magnificent defeat at the cross. Now, but there's another thing. I want you to look at verse 9. And here's the second thing I want to lift up. Jesus tears down the wall of separation through redeeming and reconciling us. Look at verse 9 with me. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So Jesus not only creates a door to go through the wall, he actually tears down the whole wall through redeeming and reconciling us. Now where do we see the language of redemption and where do we see the language of reconciliation? Because those are, those are words that we use in church but sometimes we don't really talk about what they mean. Well that word purchased men and women for God can also be translated as to buy back or to redeem. It was used in the context of the Old Testament to talk about how the Israelites were redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They were bought back from slavery into becoming freed men and women. I remember uh, learning firsthand about what redemption means. Back in November 2002, I was, I was living in Boston, and I was driving home from church on a Sunday evening. Our church met in downtown Boston, and I was coming around one of those sharp turns. It was pouring down rain, and my 
car started to hydroplane. Has anyone ever had that happen to you? And I don't know if I did a 360 or a 520. I, I don't know how many times I spun. But all I knew was that I came to the realization that that song, Jesus Takes the Wheel, makes a lot of sense in those situations. So I spun out and I uh, ended up hitting the median and I, uh, just minor injuries to me, not to my car. Uh, but I also clipped a driver behind me, and he was okay as well. It was such a strange interaction because he came out from his car, and he said, thank you, thank you so much. The insurance check is going to be worth more than the car is. So he thanked me for causing the accident. And the police officer came, and she said, you know, people have accidents here every week. And I thought, well, maybe you should change the road if that's the case. So it was a horrible day, pouring down rain. I had to get a ride to the police station. I had to call a friend. I was in seminary at the time. Um, Brian Loritz says that when he was in seminary, he wasn't poor. He was po because he couldn't afford the last two letters. So I, I was this poor, young, 20-something seminarian, and I had lost my car. And I found out the bureaucracies of city government about two days later when someone from the junkyard called me and told me to pick up my car. And I said, well, it's totaled. You can just keep totaling it. I don't know. And he said, well, no, you need to pick it up. In fact, you're being charged $75 a day for us to keep it. And I, again, didn't have much money, so I had to borrow the money from someone else. I get a ride to the junkyard, and of course, there's three cars and there's hundreds of spots, yet I'm still spending $75 a day. But I came to this realization when I was walking up to the booth where I had to pay, and it said, come, redeem your car here. (laughs) You see, the car was mine. The title was signed out to me. Even though I was 30 miles from it, it still belonged to me. It was far from me, but it was mine. Now, this is a simple story, but we would have to zoom out so much higher and greater. You see, even though we're far from God, we belong to him. Even though our sin and our helplessness and hopelessness confines us to the junkyard of our lostness, God's willing to come all that way to buy us back. Some describe the gospel as God being out to get back what belongs to him. They say you are worthy to open the scroll because you purchased, you bought back men and women for God. Now, where do we see the language of reconciliation? To, to reconcile in, in the New Testament and even the Old Testament means to exchange. So to, sometimes it's used literally to talk about the exchange of currency. But metaphorically, it's used to talk about how God exchanges enmity for peace. That God exchanges alienation and estrangement for intimacy and closeness. God exchanges hostility for love and care and compassion. But the thing is, God not only reconciles us to himself through Jesus Christ, he also reconciles us to one another. Did you see that language in verse 9? You were slain, and with your blood you purchased women and men for God. And then hear this phrase, from every tribe and language and people and nation. That, That formula shows up five times in the book of Revelation. Every tribe and language and people and nation. You know where else it shows up? 
It shows up at Pentecost. I promised I'd get back to Pentecost. In Acts 2 verse 5, people gather from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Spirit is poured out and they begin to worship God in many languages. Pentecost is a preview of what happens in Revelation. If you've ever seen a movie or a trailer uh, before you're watching a, a film, it's that 30-second preview of what you can expect when you watch the film itself. Well, Pentecost is the trailer of what's happening in heaven already and will happen. At Pentecost, we have a multilingual, poly-individual testimony of the church. People who wouldn't normally get together start getting together. Of different languages and nations and peoples. This hit home to me when I was serving a church in Amherst, Massachusetts. And I'll never forget, uh, I had preached the sermon that day and I was walking down from the sanctuary down into the fellowship hall in the, uh, the bottom floor and we had our Sunday afternoon lunch. And I'll never forget as I walked down, I, I looked over and I saw three men from our church and they were all South African. But here's the thing. One of them was black South African. One was Afrikaner of Dutch descent and one was a South African of English and Welsh descent. Now, you don't have to be a history major to know that those three folks wouldn't normally get, a, get together. But Jesus Christ united them. They were fellowshipping with one another, enjoying a meal together because of the blood of Jesus. You know, there's a saying that blood is thicker than water. But it's the other way around in the church. Water is thicker than blood. The waters of baptism unite us together. What I believe God is calling us to be as a church is to be a house of prayer for all nations. A place where people who wouldn't normally get together start getting together. Because we are a reconciled community through Jesus Christ, we become a reconciling community. A community that reaches out. A community that resembles the vision of Revelation 5 verse 9. People from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation worshiping before God and before the Lamb. So Jesus tears down the wall of separation through redeeming and reconciling us. But there's one more thing. It's in verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So one final thing. Jesus constructs a new humanity by giving us new names and a new calling. Let me say that again. Jesus constructs a new humanity by giving us new names and a new calling. Look at the names in verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. What does it mean to be a kingdom? It means to be the territory where God's rule and reign are made known. I I noticed that it doesn't say you have made them to be kings and queens. (laughs) One of Augustine's great insights is that God is God and I am not. 
No, to be a kingdom is to be the place where God's rule and reign are made known. It's to be the territory where his kingdom plays itself out in the world. And to be priests means uh, to render service unto God and to serve God's people. That's our new name and our new calling, that we are servants to God and servants of God's people. Now, you don't have to have a high-paying job to be a servant. You don't have to have an excellent resume. You don't have to be an influencer in society. You don't have to be impressive. God's the one who qualifies you. God's the one who enables and empowers you to do what you cannot do in your own power. Here's what Martin Luther King Jr. says. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You only need to have a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. This is the hope and promise that's won for us in Jesus Christ. He's constructing in himself through his church a new humanity with new names and a new calling. To be a servant, to be a priest, to be a kingdom is to say, what does it look like for me to allow myself to be the territory where God's rule and reign are made known? It's to say, what does it look like for me to render service unto God and to serve God's people? What does it look like for me? One last insight in verse 9. It's this little phrase. And they sang a new song. That phrase has always struck me. It goes back to the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, also in Isaiah 42. Those who, knew a, who sing a new song are singing that song because of a new work of mercy that God has performed on their behalf. In the context of Revelation 5, that work of mercy is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins and the worthiness that that affords him to take the scroll and open its seals. You see, Calvary is the place where God makes right all that's wrong with us. Calvary is the place where God turns things around in such a way That we are afforded access and opportunity where there was no access and opportunity. Calvary is the place where God gets underneath humanity's sin and hopelessness and despair. Calvary is the place where God opens the door and tears down the wall and constructs in himself something new. And the thing is, Calvary is the place where Rich people and poor people and black people and white people and Latino people and people from other nations and tribes and peoples, everyone can come because everyone is welcome. And so I say to you on this Pentecost weekend, sing a new song, church. Sing a new song, Because Christ has opened the door, because Christ has torn down the wall, because Christ is constructing in himself a new humanity with new names and a new calling. Sing a new song, church. Because the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll and open its seal, he has redeemed us and reconciled us. 
through his magnificent defeat. His glories now we sing to him who rose on high, who lives eternal life will bring, who lives that death may die. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you thanks and praise this weekend. You are worthy. We say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. We sing hallelujah. For the Lamb has overcome. Thank you, O God, that Pentecost is but a foretaste, a, a trailer of a coming attraction. May we, as your church, resemble the vision of Revelation 5, people from every tribe and language and people and nation, worshiping God and worshiping the Lamb. May we become a kingdom and priests to serve our God. May we be a people who give you all of our worship, all of our praise, and yes, all of our lives. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.